Forth had made a good choice when he selected that psalm. It's very appropriate for the chapter we're looking at today. This afternoon, God willing, we'll look at how the Jewish leaders combined in enmity, how they took their stand against the Lord's anointed one. This morning we'll see how Jesus pictures their rebellion in the stories he tells. Stephen read the first of them, the two sons. I'll pick up the reading now where he ended in verse 33 of chapter 21. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence round it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than at first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables... They perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, 
How did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. It's clear in these stories that Jesus is talking about the Jewish leaders. He pictures the way that they treated the prophets and eventually God's own son. You see that very clearly in the picture of the story of the tenants. And then the story of the wedding banquet is in many ways similar to that. In both stories, servants are sent out and those servants are rejected and abused. In both, there's a son who's a key figure. In both, it's clear, the Jewish leaders are in Jesus' sights. But he's also speaking to us. He's asking us, where do you fit into this picture? Now the second story there, is the story of the wedding feast. Not the kind of small wedding you're allowed nowadays. On the mainland, five or six at most socially distant guests. No reception. This is the wedding of the king's son. It involves a massive banquet. You notice how five times in the first nine verses you have that word, feast. And the day of this wedding comes. The wedding of the year but the invited guests don't show up. The king says to his servants to tell them that everything's ready. Still, they don't come. Some of them just pay no attention. They go about their business, their trading, their farm work. Others mistreat the king's servants. They even kill some of them. They show utter contempt for the son and the king and for the king himself. And that, of course, amounts to high treason. And so the king sends his army to put down the rebellion. He destroys those murderers. He burns their city. What's going on here? Well, in this story, obviously, the king is God. His son is Jesus. The wedding banquet is the heavenly kingdom. It's a celebration that's centered on the Messiah. The invited guests are the Jews, the servants of the prophets and the apostles who brought the gospel invitation. And how did the Jews respond? By and large, they rejected the invitation. In the next chapter, Jesus laments, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. Being a prophet was not usually a comfortable occupation. The apostles didn't have an easy time of things. By the time we reach the end of the New Testament, James has been executed. Peter's escaped from prison. He's gone into hiding with a price on his head. Paul's in prison awaiting execution. John's in exile in the gulag of his day. Most of the Jews want nothing to do with Jesus and his message. And this picture 
Jesus shows two ways that they responded, two forms in which, which their rejection took. The first one was indifference. Some of them just ignored the invitation. They were too busy to come, just weren't interested. Other things were more important to them. In his parable of the sower and the seed, Jesus describes them as the seed sown among thorns, the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. What about you? Are you too busy to think about the claims of Jesus? Does your job or your family or your possessions mean more to you? Even if you are a Christian, it's only too easy, isn't it, to allow other things to crowd Christ out of our lives. It's so easy to be distracted by the tyranny of the urgent. That's the first response, indifference. Then there's a second response, hostility. Some people attacked, they even killed the king's servants. I don't think any of you are likely to self-identify with that group. If you did, you wouldn't be listening to the sermon. What happens when the preacher starts talking about some of the less popular parts of the Bible? Things that don't tie in with the norms of our society today. The Bible's teaching about sex. Marriage, gender. Those are some of the flashpoints today, aren't they? It's amazing how quickly people who pride themselves on being tolerant become completely intolerant and antagonistic. That's hate speech. Ban it. Cancel him. If you come into one of those two groups, the indifferent or the hostile, Jesus has a sober warning for you. You can't ultimately reject God's invitation and get away with it. The king in the story is patient, isn't he? He sends out an invitation to the wedding, save the date. And then when the time comes, he sends his servants to call the guests to the wedding. When they don't come, he sends a second message urging them to come. But his patience has a limit. You can't go on rejecting his invitations forever. When his servants are abused, in the end he sends his troops to destroy those murderers and burn their city. Listen to these tragic words from the end of Second Chronicles. All the officers of the priests and the people were exceedingly unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged, 
He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his princes, all these he brought to Babylon, and they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons. God had compassion on his people. He kept sending his servants, the prophets, to them. He kept calling them back to himself. But the people kept abusing them and rejecting their message until eventually they reached the point of no return. God's wrath could be held back no longer. That's one of the passages, I think, that's in the background of this story. And, of course, there's another vivid demonstration that God's patience has an end. In AD 70, the people had said to Pilate, his blood be on us and on our children. And their rejection of Jesus led eventually to the destruction of Jerusalem, the burning of the temple by the Romans. Jesus himself continually warns of judgment to come. Just flip forward a couple of pages in your Bible to Matthew 25, for example. You have the picture there of the foolish virgins who are shut out of the feast. There's the unprofitable servant cast into outer darkness. There are those who did not receive Jesus cast into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels into everlasting punishment. That's the first part of this story. It makes rather grim reading, doesn't it? The Jews, especially the Jewish leaders, rejected Jesus. They wouldn't come to him. They persecuted him and his followers as their ancestors had done with the prophets. But then there's a second part to this story, and that's much more encouraging. This king had planned a wedding, not a wake. He's determined his son will have guests at this wedding. He tells his servants to go out into the roads, invite everyone they meet to the wedding feast. They went out into the roads. They gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Just picture that scene. You're walking down the road, minding your own business, thinking about the shopping you've got to do. And suddenly you're stopped by a servant in the royal livery. And he says to you, the king wants you to come to his son's wedding feast. What? You must be joking. Me at a royal wedding? And the servant explains that the people the king originally invited refused to come. He's not going to let that good food go to waste. His son's not going to celebrate his wedding alone. Anyone who wants is welcome to come and enjoy a royal feast. Another man's walking down the road. He knows a certain woman's husband is away on business, so he's heading for her house. And he too gets the invitation. Another man perhaps is hurrying along with a stolen pearl in his pocket. Again, come to the wedding, they say. And so it goes on, till the wedding hall is crowded with guests. None of them expected to be there. Some of them certainly don't deserve to be there. What's all this about? It's a picture of the invitation of the gospel. 
It's a tremendous offer. This is a royal feast, not a burger at McDonald's. God isn't a miserly host who carefully limits what he puts on your plate. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life. That's what the gospel invites you to. Maybe you think of Christianity as something restrictive. Don't do this. Don't do that. Look down your noses at people who misbehave. No. Jesus offers life in all its fullness. Would you like to have meaning and purpose in your life? In this time of great uncertainty and fear, would you like to be sure that whatever happened to you, good or bad, would ultimately be for your good? Would you like to be a child of God, knowing that your sins are all forgiven? Would you like to know that when you die, God will receive you to an eternal life of happiness? That's what you are being offered. It's a feast, an abundant life, good news. Think about who's at the centre of this feast. The Son of God, Jesus Christ. Is it not worth getting to know him? As Jeff Thomas says, Jesus had meekness without weakness, tenderness without feebleness, firmness without belligerence, straight speaking without coarseness, love without sentimentality, righteousness without being sanctimonious, truth without error, zeal without fanaticism, passion without prejudice, Heavenly mindedness without unreality, service without civility, convictions without egotism, evaluation without prejudice, love for himself while loving his neighbours as himself, beauty without vanity, joy without any depression. That's who you're being invited to. And there's more, there's something else this picture shows us. Peter tells us that you don't have to earn these things. You don't have to pay for them. You don't have to deserve them. It's all completely free. Remember what Jesus said? Those servants gathered all they found, both bad and good. In this Luke 14, Jesus tells a similar story about a great supper where the invited guests made lame excuses. So the master of the house said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. People who had nothing to commend them. People who couldn't do anything to repay the host. Don't think the gospel is only for respectable middle class people who have their lives in order. It's for everyone good or bad, moral or immoral, black or white, straight or gay, intelligent or intellectually challenged, rich or poor, healthy or unhealthy, old or young, all are invited to the feast. All are welcome to come to Christ for new life, abundant life, eternal life. You might expect the story to end there. 
The stones are brought in, this huge crowd of people, the halls full of guests. They're eating, they're drinking, they're dancing, they're having a great time. And they all lived happily ever after. The end. It's not what Jesus does, is it? There's a third part to his story. The king comes to inspect the gathering. And as he looks round the guests, he sees someone who stands out like a sore thumb. All the rest are wearing wedding garments. This man's in his ordinary clothes. What's going on here? Some commentators say that every guest would have been given a special robe to wear when he arrived at the feast. So Simon Kistemarker, for example, says the king invites the people and he expects them to put on the clothes he provides. By wearing the wedding garment furnished by the king, no one reveals poverty or misery. Every guest can hide his social and economic status behind the clothes received from the king. The clothes are clean and white, which in an Eastern culture signifies joy and happiness. Well then, what an insult to the king to refuse to wear the special robes he provides. To say, in effect, my clothes are better than yours. Other commentators say there's not much evidence for that practice. And what that's happened, they say, the other guests have prepared for the feast. They've put on their best clothes, whatever those might be. This man's just come in his normal, everyday working clothes, just as though he's calling at the pub for a drink on his way home from work. Again, it would show contempt for the king. This man doesn't think there's anything special about where he's going. It's not important. He's fine just the way he is. Either way, he has no defence for his action. He knows he's insulted the king. He's taking advantage of the king's generosity. He'll take the free food without acknowledging where it came from. When the king gently asks him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He's speechless. He knows he's in the wrong. And he's put out of the wedding. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that pace, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why does Jesus end the story on such a gloomy note? Why not finish with the happy celebrations? Because there's another warning to which we must pay heed. The gospel invitation comes to all, good and bad, but doesn't leave us unchanged. Not everyone who shows an interest in Christianity becomes a genuine Christian. Not everyone who comes to church is truly saved. Not everyone who professes faith endures to the end. The parable doesn't tell us exactly what the wedding garment represents, so we shouldn't be too dogmatic. Faith, love, good works, baptism, righteous living, all of those have been suggested with scripture verses to back them up. But as Calvin says, there's no point in arguing about the marriage garment, whether it is faith or a holy and godly life. For faith cannot be separated from good works, 
and good works proceed only from faith. All Christ wants to say here is that we are called by the Lord under the condition that we be renewed in our spirits into his image. And therefore, if we are to remain always in his house, the old man with all his blemishes is to be cast off. We are to practice the new life so that our appearance may correspond to our honourable calling. You sends the story with the solemn words, many are called, but few are chosen. Many hear the outward invitation of the gospel, as you have done this morning. But not all genuinely enter the kingdom of God. Some refuse the invitation, like the Jewish chief priests and Pharisees. Some make a profession of faith, perhaps join the church. But their lives don't change. Where are you in this story? Are you one of those guests thronging the hall, dressed in the wedding garment? Do you realise then what a privilege you've been given? Are you thankful for it? Are you rejoicing in God's goodness to you? Are you living your life in the light of the glory that awaits you? Whatever isolation and loneliness you feel now will end in a great feast that far surpasses anything Christmas can offer. Are you wearing that wedding garment? Are you thankful? Are you realising what God has given to you and rejoicing in it? Or are you one of those who refuse to come to Christ? You have your own life to live. You have no need of Jesus. You find his demands offensive. You don't want to live the way he expects you to live. Or are you like the man without the wedding garment? You're happy to have the blessings of God's kingdom. You don't really want the king. You want to stay in control of your life, to hold Christ at arm's length. To such people, this parable is a solemn, solemn warning. The way that you are taking ends in disaster. Jesus uses two images of hell in this passage. The first is the burning of a great fire. The second is the cold blackness of being utterly alone in the dark. Now don't quibble about contradictions. How do you have darkness and a burning fire at the same time? These are just pictures. Pictures of something far worse than either image can portray. Something far worse than your worst nightmares. Eternal punishment. And that is what lies ahead for you if you continue to live without Christ. But it doesn't have to be. That's the message of the central part of the story. God invites you to come to Christ. Are you willing to come? To come to God on his terms. 
to recognize that you don't deserve his mercy. You don't deserve this feast he offers. Are you willing to own up to your faults and failures? Not making excuses, not comparing yourself to somebody else. Are you willing to acknowledge Christ as Lord? To surrender your life to him? To go wherever he tells you? To do whatever he says? then you will be welcomed into this great feast. You'll be clothed with Christ's own righteousness so you can stand faultless, unashamed in the very presence of God. You will know the fullness of life with him forever. Today, your mercy calls us to wash away our sin, however great our trespass, whatever we have been. However long from mercy our hearts have turned away, your precious blood can cleanse us and make us clean today. Today your gate is open and all who enter in shall find a father's welcome and pardon for their sin. The past shall be forgotten, a present joy be given, a future grace be promised, a glorious crown in heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for that great invitation to come to you, to find in you all that we need, pardon for sin, peace, assurance, comfort, life everlasting, abundant life, Help us, Lord, to heed that invitation to come to you, whether it's for the first time or the hundredth time, to rejoice in your goodness to us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.